and I'll be reading out of uh, uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis uh, 3, uh, 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did you really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for to dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Renaissance. My name is Lester. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege for, for me to be here and just share God's word uh, this morning. Uh, please join me in a really quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Thank you for all of your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work um, in our minds and in our hearts to reveal and show us a little bit more, a glimpse into your magnificence, Lord, into your goodness and your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, one of my new favorite movies recently has, uh, is the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, if you haven't watched it, please watch it. Uh, you're missing out. It's a 
If you haven't watched it, I'll just give you a brief kind of description of it. It's a, it's a biographical drama about African-American women mathematicians who worked at NASA in the 1960s during the space race. And in particular, highlighting Katherine Johnson uh, as a mathematician who calculated flight trajectories for the Project Mercury and other missions, and also highlighted the life of Dorothy Vaughn, uh, a NASA supervisor, Mary Jackson, an engineer. You know, and the first time I watched it, it was all right. But second time, you know, I'm mad enough to admit that I did start shedding a few tears. Um, just because, uh, just watching it a second time, I, I really grew to appreciate, um, I think, just the, the level of hardship and sacrifice and just the difficulty and also just the racial discrimination that these women were going through, and yet they overcame. Uh, it's a wonderful story. Now, if you didn't watch the whole movie and you only caught the end of it, or you, maybe you just got a YouTube clip of it or you wikied it, um, you might say, oh, and you just caught the end of it, you're like, oh, that was, that was a nice movie, you know? If you only watch the end and you see these women at the end of the movie, you, would, you could walk away thinking, cool, they got promotions. They got recognized. It's a movie about just, well, okay, so these women got promoted. Yay. So what? Um, but if that's all you got, you miss out on, like, the real kind of depth and beauty and all the details that happened beforehand to give you a glimpse in terms of the, the character of these women, uh, the struggles they went through, the hardship, to know that this wasn't an easy thing that they went through, that they actually had to work really hard, extra hard, unnecessarily hard, to kind of show and prove their brilliance and their character. Uh, so if you only, miss, if you only, watch the big, only catch the end of it, you, just, you miss out on a really good movie. Um, and so keeping that in mind, I want us to approach as we're ending this new series on the Old Testament that we also in some ways miss out on the goodness, the greatness, the real complexity and character of God when we don't understand or we don't, we don't really look into the Old Testament. Uh, we miss out on so much context. Uh, there's a term called foreshadow which means the definition of it basically is to represent, to indicate, to typify beforehand, to prefigure. Uh, it's a literary term basically to show that there's going to be like a hint in the beginning to show you something that's going to happen later on. That's what basically a foreshadowing is. And, I, and so as we're heading, I, wanted to, I want you to keep that in mind that as we're heading into the new series, that we're looking back in the part, in part of the Bible called the Old Testament. You might ask, well, why are we looking at the Old Testament? I mean, just the word old is already just not appealing to me. Aren't we all about just like new and kind of new things and like, you know, fresh things? Um, I thought we always wanted to move forward. But it's, it's important for us to look back at the Old Testament. Um, and by the way, if you're joining us for the first time, if you're new to Christianity or new to just to church in general, we're so glad you're here. And it's our prayer, it's our hope that as you, you know, hear the word today, as you hear the message today, that God will begin to open the eyes of your heart just to see, you know, give you a little, maybe a little more of a peek of who God is and his goodness to us. See, when we're, when we're not familiar with the Bible, we'll mistake the Bible as like a random series of writings of books that really have no rhyme or reason. It's just, if, if you just try to read it like a, like a regular book, like chapter one to chapter, the end of a chapter of a book, the Bible doesn't really work that way. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So if you look at the Bible as a collection uh, so this is a fact of it. The Bible is a collection of 66 books inspired by God that were written over a span of over 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. And yet, and yet, they're all harmonious. They're all in agreement 
on who the story is about. They're all harmonious on the story of God's love and his redemption to his people. When we talk about the Bible, it's typically broken into two sections, the Old and New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament consists of books from Genesis to Malachi, or here in Renaissance, known as Malachi. I don't know why, but we call it that now. Uh, it's been forever marred in my brain now. I can't, I can't get past it. And the New Testament starts from, Genesis, I mean, from Matthew to Revelation, to Revelation. And the Old Testament is foundational for our faith because it tells the account of God, who he is, and throughout history, how he has been working and redeeming and trying to save his people throughout history. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the promises that God says in the Old Testament that ultimately are alluding to and pointing us to, foreshadowing us to a Savior, to redeem us, to ultimately redeem, redeem sinners, broken sinners like you and me. We can easily make the mistake thinking that the Old Testament is all about like, God's wrath and punishment, like fire and brimstone. Uh, maybe because we grew up stories hearing about like Old Testament, about God just doing all these kind of things. And we can make that mistake of just thinking that way. And the New Testament is just about Jesus, God's love and grace and forgiveness. But it, we, it's important for us to know that in this new series that we're going into, it's important for us to see that the story of God's love doesn't start in a manger in Matthew, but it starts with the first book in Genesis. But we, 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 miss, we miss out on that. It's important for us to reinforce that all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's word. It's a story about him. Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament writings. Think about it. At the time of Jesus, when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, there is no New Testament. There's only what we call now the Old Testament, Scripture. And so when Jesus is referring to it, referring to Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. So we should think twice about the importance of the Old Testament if Jesus himself breathed it, quoted it, lived by it. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 24, when referencing the Old Testament, he says, and beginning with Moses, this is Jesus teaching in the world to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, explained to them what was said in all Scripture concerning himself. In other words, all Scripture is about Jesus. And this is such an important point for us to take to heart. The Bible, as if you've been coming for a little, for a little while now, we say it over and over again, the Bible is not about you or me. It's all about Jesus. The mistake some of us make is that we take the Bible and we see, well, how can it be useful to me today, like we would a self-help book? You know, it's a good seller. It's, a good, it's been the bestseller for so long that they don't even put it on a list anymore. But it's, it's such a good book, and we kind of look at it as a self-help book. Well, what can I get out of it? And what does the Bible tell me about me? But it's not about you. And it's, and it's not that we can't find wisdom and guidance in the Bible. It's not that we can't find good things that are applicable to us, that are helpful to us in our situation. But we're prone to make the mistake of making ourselves the main character of the story and hijacking the story of the Bible into all about us. The Bible isn't about you. The Bible is God's gift to us to make himself known to us, to reveal about who he is. Today, we're looking at Genesis and the story of Adam in Genesis 3. And as we look at the story, I hope that, hope that we don't get stuck on the story of just Adam. But I hope that this will be a start for you and I to begin to see Jesus, not only in this story, but all throughout the Old Testament. Here in Genesis 3, we're introduced to a story that you know, a lot of us are familiar with. Whether you've been to church or not, you've heard of Adam and Eve. 
It's a very familiar story. But, we'll, but too often we'll miss out, and we'll, we'll miss out on the meaning and the impact of what's going on here. If you just look at this story in Genesis 3, this account, as a story about Satan tempting Adam and Eve about a piece of fruit. We're going to miss out on this thing. So there's a picture I kind of included here. Uh, for those who are vegetarians and vegans, uh, I hope you enjoy it. You see this picture here? Um, uh, I'm going to be honest. If Satan came to me, showed me a picture of a fruit or a veggie, and he said, hey, I, I, I don't know why he has to talk that way, but <laughs> hey, if you eat this, you'll be like God. And I'll, I'll ask him, you're saying, if I, let me get this straight. If I eat this piece of vegetable or fruit, I will be like God. And he goes, yes. Honestly, I would say I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. When I look at that picture of vegetables, I, don't, I am not lying. There's not an ounce of me that ever craves or desires vegetables. I just don't. I don't. I'm not denying its benefit. I'm not denying that I need to eat it more. It's part of God's creation. I should eat it more. I'm not concerned about my beach body. The way I approach it is I go to a beach with my body. That's beach body for me. I'm good. <laughs> I'm not concerned about that. But, you know, if we look at this, you know, and I look at it, if he tempted me with a piece of fruit, and we, should, we, we read the story and we get caught up in, like, these details, and we, caught up, we get caught up on things that we shouldn't get caught up on. We think if it's about a, about a piece of fruit or whatever it is, we'll kind of miss out. I mean, if Satan came to me and said, hey, like, I have this, you know, piece of Joe's Pizza or Chick-fil-A or Korean fried chicken, I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. You know, <laughs> it's something I need to consider. Um, but I can honestly go the rest of my life without ever eating a piece of vegetable ever again. I can't because I need it. I need to eat it for my own health. Um, but when Satan comes to Adam and Eve and into our lives today, what we're being tempted with is just not a piece of fruit. Whatever you are tempted with, whatever it, it is, it'll be something, like it says in Genesis 3, like what it was like when Eve saw it, it'll be something that catches your eye or catches your heart. If you look at Genesis 3, it says it was pleasing to the eye. It, was, it looked good. It was desirable. And Satan's goal, Satan's goal in tempting Adam and Eve along with us today is to do a couple of things. This is the goal of temptation. The goal of temptation is that Satan wants to change your narrative of who God is and his love for you. In other words, he wants to change the story, the character of God, and say he is not good, he is not God, and he is not loving. He wants to change the narrative. And the second part, he wants to change the narrative of who you are and what you're called to do and what God made you to be. He wants to say, you're, no, you're not that. You can be something more. You can be something else. You just need to listen to me. Satan's goal in tempting Adam and Eve, as it is for you and I today, is to undermine the character of God and make you and I mistrust God and his love for us. And how Satan will do that is by twisting God's truth into a lie. The twisting of the truth would be very much like what Satan said, to, said Satan said to Eve. Did God, did he really say that? Did God really say you can't eat that? And it sounds innocent. It sounds benign, but it's not. Satan, Satan will take a truth, twist it, to change the original meaning and the good intent of God. So for us, it'll be something like this. I heard God was a good father. 
That's, I heard somewhere in the Bible, God's a good father. Doesn't he want you to be happy? Why wouldn't he let you have fill in the blank, whatever that is for your life? Why wouldn't he let you have that? Because you know if you have it, it'll make you happy. Because when we are tempted, we'll be tempted with something that we actually do want in our life. I never want vegetables, so I will be never tempted with vegetables. But there are other things in my life that I want, which will be, which will be used because that's where my heart is. We'll be tempted with something we actually do want, and we'll also focus on how God has not given it to us yet. We'll hear in our heads, if God was really good, why would he withhold such a good thing from you? If God's so good, why would he hold back good things? See, I think this is the mistake we can make. We, we think that God, the withholding part is only bad things, right? Like clearly like bad, hurtful, harmful, detrimental sins and activities that would, be, that would hurt us. But also God keeps us from good things in our lives because they're not good for us right now. And we make the mistake, we kind of, like, we oversimplify it. Did God really say you can't have whatever that is? Wasn't God just being rhetorical or theoretical? Didn't God say somewhere, you know, maybe in Matthew somewhere or some other parts of Scripture that he's a good father and why would a good father withhold good things from his own children whom he loves? That God's law for you, they're just, you know, they're just, they're good advice. It doesn't matter to you. And if you don't listen, it, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing will happen to you. Or as Satan told Eve, you will not certainly die. You know, I grew up as one of those uh, goody-two-shoe Christians. I grew up in church most of my life, all my life. Um, and as a goody-two-shoe Christian, I always tried to do the right thing, even, though I, even when I didn't want to do the right thing, just because I was just legalistic. I, just, I was just taught this is the way to do things. Uh, my legalism taught me that if I was good, then God would be good to me. You know, it's a give-and-take relationship. It makes sense to me, right? It logically makes sense. I give, I take, you know. It's a fair exchange. After all, it sounded right. And I grew up hearing about how much God loved me, and I, I, I didn't really doubt that part until I got to college. See, my freshman year for me in college was a really weird experience for me. It's like I've never experienced before. I went to a college that none of my friends went to in, in, at a state I didn't really know that well into a college that was a little bigger than my high school. Um, and it was the loneliest time of my life. All throughout high school, I had friends I hung out with. We had, I, had lunch, I had a group of friends I hung out with lunch every day. We would talk about SNL, and we would just laugh the whole time. This is when SNL used to be good. <laughs> right? I hung out with my football friends and my baseball friends, and, and on the weekends, I'd hang out with my youth group friends. And I just had people around me my whole time. There was never a time in my life I could, that I didn't have people around me. But I remember that in my freshman year, for some reason, it was weird. Like, every day my freshman year, I ate by myself in the cafeteria. And in the beginning, it was all right. But after, like, a semester, it started to get crushing. I just, like, I don't know why. There's just, I just wasn't making the, right, the same connections I used to make. And it was just, it was the first in my life I just felt so lonely, so alone. And every day I ate there, and it hurt. And I started to wonder, why is this happening to me? God, I'm, I'm good. I still go to church. I kind of wake up <laughs> most of the time for a Sunday service uh, as a college student. I'm still pretty good about it. Um, and I was like, why is this happening to me, or why is God letting this happen to me? So I did what I thought was right for me. 
because I was lonely. I, I started to date someone I shouldn't have because I didn't want to be alone anymore. And deep inside, I knew God was saying no. Deep inside, I knew God was saying, don't do that. And I knew that he wanted to do something deep in my heart, a work in my heart. But at the time, I didn't want to listen. I was enjoying it way too much. You know, I was, uh, I, and I, it was fun, and, and best of all, I wasn't lonely anymore. Or so I thought. But man, there, I had made a ton of mistakes, caused a lot of heartache. And 20 years later, there are a few things I regret more in my life than my dating life in college. I look back and I, ra- I rationalized it. I made excuses for my behavior not to listen to God. I wanted what I wanted, and I felt like God wasn't giving it to me, so I took it. If you're not going to do God, I'll do it for myself. See, the point I want to make here is not that Christians can't date. Please don't walk away that. Okay? Okay. Or in college. I'm not, that's not my point. There are wise ways to go about it. But the point is, I wanted life, my life, without God interfering. And I didn't care what he was telling me. And I didn't care what he was trying to do in my life. See, likewise, when you're tempted, Satan will always do two things. Satan will, he will highlight what you will get out of it without telling you the consequences of it. And he will minimize the damage of your disobedience. He will minimize it. Idols, if you heard before here, idols always overpromise and underdeliver. See, Adam is tempted with, with this temptation by Satan to change the narrative of who God is and who he is. The narrative of God is being changed from being a good, loving, providing father and a God. And Adam is being changed to something else. And Adam is being changed from being created in the image of God, one who would imitate God, follow him, obey him, into being, no, you can be like God. Satan's goal in tempting Adam and Eve is to tell them that your life is not dependent upon God for their own good. You can do it yourself. And I want us to focus here. And this is the heart and this is the core of Adam's disobedience. This is the problem. The heart and core of Adam's disobedience wasn't that, wasn't, wasn't that he didn't follow God's rules. See, too, much, too many of us get stuck on this. God, wants us, God has all these rules in the Old Testament and a little bit not as much in the New Testament. And he's all about the rules. That's not the point. This, it wasn't about just following rules or not following rules. It was that he, Adam, was attempting to live a life apart from God. It wasn't the rules. It wasn't so much disobedience. It's the fact that by him doing this, he was trying to live a life, created in God's image, to live a life apart from God. That, that problem, that action is the cosmic and divine crime that Adam commits and we commit. We make the mistake thinking that God is upset because we, don't, we broke some rules that he set up. No, the problem, and the, problem, the problem and our problem is that we are trying to live as if, as if our lives don't depend on him. As if he doesn't exist and isn't essential for us. And that we are trying to be like God in the sense that we falsely think that we can be self-sustaining. See, at the heart of Adam's disobedience is that by his actions, he was saying two things to God. He's saying, God... I know what's better for me than you do. And two, I don't need you. I'll figure it out on my own. Ta-Nehisi's quotes, he, said, he quotes, he's saying, humans were not built to withstand the weight of celebrity. And I take him to mean to say that we were never meant to be the centerpiece 
We were never meant to bear the weight of being the star of our life. We were never meant to bear to be the centerpiece of our life. We were not meant to bear that kind of responsibility and weight and burden. And as we read later on in Genesis 3, from verses 7 to 19, we can see the effects of, of Adam and Eve's disobedience. We read later on that Adam and Eve, just like we are today, that Satan lied to them. And the consequences of their disobedience left us all with a legacy of sin, of brokenness, and separation from God. Idols always overpromise, and they underdeliver. Starting from verse 7 and 12, we read how Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, disobeyed God, and that ruined them. So what happens when you and I listen and believe in the lie that you can be like God? And what I mean by that is that you can be self-sustaining, that you can be self-determining, that you can be self-sufficient, that you can be the source of your life, that you and yourself can derive meaning and significance and identity. What happens when we do that? We find out, like Adam and Eve did, that we cannot bear that weight. It's just too big. It's too much for us. We were not created that way. And not only that, no one else can bear that weight. That's why when we lean upon people that we love, our friends, loved ones, children, family, they cannot bear that weight for us to, de- to define for us our significance, our meaning, our identity, our purpose. So what happens? Like Adam and Eve, our failures, our inadequacies, our inadequacies are exposed. What happens when we reverse the story and the narrative of, of who God is and who we are created in him, and we change it, we try to flip it. We read in the verses here now, from verse 7, that there's shame. Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked, that they were shameful of disobedience. They hid. They hid from God. That's one of the things that all of us do is universal. When you and I make a mistake or we lie or we do something we shouldn't, we shouldn't do, one of the first things that you and I do instinctively is we hide. We try to hide it or we try to hide ourselves. We do that. And the, the, the attempt to hide it is sad. Like Adam, he tried to sow fig leaves. I don't know how good fig leaves are, but I mean, how much can you cover yourself with fig leaves? You know, physically it represents a kind of a, a, a complete inadequacy of it. They lie. They lie to God. Oh, I didn't know you were here. I heard you coming. I didn't know you were here. And they blame. The, the, the result and the effects of our disobedience is that we blame. If you look at the story, Adam, Adam blames Eve. Adam blames God. Eve blames the serpent. So what happens is we blame each other. We blame our circumstances, circumstances and ultimately we blame God for where we are in our life. And then there's ultimately a separation. Sin separates them, and death is introduced because of the disobedience. Now, I do want to pause here. Up until this point, everything we talked about has been fun. It's kind of been a little depressing. Up until this point, we can make the mistake of thinking so far that we covered that Genesis 3 is all about Adam and Eve's disobedience. I said this before earlier on. If, and how much they messed up. If you get stuck on this story, thinking about that Genesis 3 is all about Satan and all about Adam and Eve's disobedience, you're missing the point. Jesus said, all scripture is about me. The story is not about Adam and Eve's disobedience. The story is not even about you and I and our disobedience. But what's going on here is it's not just a lesson of temptation. The bigger problem is that a relationship between humanity and God has been broken. The main point of Genesis 3 isn't about Adam and Eve. The main character is not Adam and Eve. The main point and character in this account 
in this story, in this one chapter, in this one book, is about God. It's about God and how He has provided out of His great wisdom and love for us that He already prepared a plan, that He already prepared a way, that He already prepared for us a Savior. That before even the gospel letters were written, Jesus is being revealed here to restore our relationship with God that was broken through the sin and disobedience. If you look at Genesis 3, 14 to 15 and verse 21, we see the foreshadow. It gives us a peak what's to come. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, it's easy for us to look, overlook it, but then let's look at the verses. Uh, verse 15 it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. This prophecy given here in verse 14 and 15 is a promise that God gives and kind of just tells it, this is what's going to happen. You're going to live. You're going to keep on living. And from your offspring, I will produce a Savior. And what will happen is, Satan, you will try to stop my plans. And this idea of biting the heel. If you get bitten, it's really painful, but not necessarily fatal. And then God says, but he will crush your head. And who is he referring to? Jesus. Jesus will crush your head. When you crush anyone's head, anything's head, it's over. It says, when Jesus comes, he will crush the head of sin. He will crush the power of sin. He will crush the penalty that was on us. And it will be, and it will be end. And this promise of a Savior will come from Adam and Eve. Once again, Luke 24, all Scripture is about Jesus. All Scripture is about him. Later in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Adam and Eve failed to fix the problem that they created. And in their sin against God, they hid. And they tried to sadly and inadequately clothe themselves. And likewise, we fail to, co- to cover ourselves by, and because we lack the resources to fix what was broken. Here's the reality for us. Only the Creator can, cre- can fix what was created. Only the Creator can fix what was created. God himself, who created us, is the only one with the resource, with the ability to fix us what we broke. Our disobedience and sin not only broke a relationship with God, but we were broken. We were broken. In Jesus, we see the true and better Adam, that through his obedience, we are made new and whole again. God, in verse 21, he makes his garments of skin and he clothed them. And in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed, an animal was slain. A sacrifice was made. But that physical clothing that we see in verse 21 and on only points to a greater sacrifice. Because even if you clothe Adam and Eve, they're naked, and you just covered them. The problem of their sin still remains. But pay attention to this. Nowhere in Genesis, up until this point, we're only in chapter 3, but nowhere in this account so far, has there ever been another, has there been a mention about an animal being, animal being slain to cover someone? There's no account of this. There's no account where Adam and Eve or anyone in the story, like, there's an animal being slain for covering. It hasn't happened yet. And Scripture tells us that, be, that before there was an Adam and Eve, or before there, there was any mistake that was made, a slain animal would be there for them, to cover them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, He, that is Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times, these last times for your sake. Let's look carefully at these verses. He, that is Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, 
Jesus was chosen to be your Savior even before Adam and Eve were created. That Jesus, Jesus was there as a Savior before there was even sin. The second half of that verse says, but was, but was revealed in these last times for who? For your sake. For your sake. I told you, we said this before, the Bible is God's gift to us to reveal to us who he is. And so this book is being revealed to us for our sake that God has always been a step ahead of us because he loves us and cares for us. That God has always been greater than our sin. That means even right now, wherever you are in your life right now, God is already a step ahead of you. He is already ahead of you. I want you to think about the last time that you did something you know was wrong. Or you did something you shouldn't have done or you didn't do what you should have done. God's still ahead of you. He is not surprised. He is ahead of you. Whatever it is in this life, this story shows us the glory of Christ, a Savior that, does, that is not just there in response to our failures, but he is established as a Savior for us even before the foundation of the world. We, we're, just, we're, just, we're just in Genesis right now. We just got through the third chapter. We're not even, we haven't really got far yet. But even in the beginning, the foundation of the world, Jesus was present even before our sin was there. And I hope this is a great comfort for you in the sense that there is nothing you have done, can do, will do, that he has not already known of, provided for, paid for. He was there even before you sinned. The story of Genesis 3 is to point us to Jesus and show who he is. And I'm just going to highlight a few things, the difference between Adam and Jesus. Where Adam failed when he was tempted by Satan and tried to change the narrative of who God is and who he is, Jesus likewise in Matthew when he was tempted by Satan didn't lose sight of the story, didn't lose sight of who God was, of who he was and what he was called to do. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he reminded, he reminded Satan of the true narrative. He said when he was tempted by food, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the word of God. Man, you and I live, humanity lives by the word of God, is sustained by the word of God, not by something we can have by our own hands. Where Adam and Eve blamed each other, blamed their circumstances, and ultimately blamed God, Jesus, in his obedience, took upon our disobedience, took upon our blame, our shame, and instead he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus didn't blame God for his circumstances. Jesus didn't blame God when he was tempted, both in the wilderness and in the garden. But he faced temptation and hardship on the cross, and instead he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. When Adam faced temptation in the garden of Eden to be like God, to separate himself from the source of his life, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane did not, set, did not consider equality with God, as Philippians 2 would say. He did not consider, though being in very nature of God, even though being equal to God, did not consider equality to be God something to be grasped. But instead, he took upon the cup of suffering and obedience to follow the will of the Father and to glorify him. Adam, when he was faced, when he was before a tree in the garden and tried to gain life with his own hands by grabbing that fruit, Jesus, when he was on the tree of a cross, gave up his life so that we could be free. Jesus shows us that he is the true life, 
that his obedience, that Jesus shows us through his obedience, that, his, that even through his own life, that the meaning of his life wasn't independent of God. Even Jesus and some showed that. When he was born here, when he was made in, when he was born here and, made, and made in humanity, through his life, he showed that my life, even though I'm God also, is not independent of God. But you read in the Gospels over and over and over again that he would take moments away to spend time with God, to be recharged, to be reminded, to be renewed, to be refocused. And says, he says, the son can only do what he sees the father doing. My life is meant to follow God. My life is meant to imitate God. Being created in the image of God means we're supposed to reflect him in both character and activity. Don't make the same mistake Adam and Eve did by thinking that your obedience in life can be done apart from God. You and I were made in God's image. He is the source of our life, and we are just the lamps that reflect his brilliance. I do want to stand with this couple of things, a couple of just challenges. The next time you're tempted, the next time you're wondering, is God good? The next time you're, you're, you're wondering, should I change this narrative of who God is from what the Bible's been saying? Spend more time in Scripture. Pick up a CBR or whatever, whatever reading plan, but pick it up. Immerse yourself in the Word of God so that you can be reminded of His truth, so you can listen to His voice and not of the devil. Let Jesus be the model for you of how to overcome temptation, that when you face temptation, answer it with the Word of God, the truth of God. Don't let Satan twist it. In Romans 12, too, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What he's saying is, in order for us not to get deceived, in order for us to figure out what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is, we need to be armed and guarded with the truth of God's word in his word. Family, friends, whatever God has called you to do, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted in this world, in this life that we live. You will be tempted to change the narrative of who God is, that God is not loving and God is not good. But your life and your survival, it isn't up to you. You were never meant to bear that burden. You and I were never meant to bear that kind of burden of making sure that our lives will make it on our own. You don't have to carry that weight. Whatever it is, wherever you are in your life, will you take a step forward and trust and believe that God is going to be there for you, that he will provide for you? When you are tempted, I encourage you, would you instead look up to a different tree? Would you look up to the cross? And instead of being tempted and lied to regarding who God is and who you are, who told you you're naked? Who told you you're not loved? Who told you that I'm your God, that I would not take care of you? Who told you that you don't have enough? Who told you? I hope and pray that you will look upon Jesus, who hung up on the tree, the cross for you and I, to remind you that he is good. He is loving. To the point of dying on the cross, to pay for your sins, and Jesus makes sure that you are never separated again, as Adam was from the garden. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the stories you provide. 
I thank you that in some ways we can identify with the, the people and the characters that are there. But at the same time, I pray that you would help us not to get stuck on the, on the, on the details of stuff like that, or of disobedience, or our failures, or our inadequacies. Instead, Lord, retrain our eyes to see you, Jesus, as being supreme throughout Scripture, as being loving throughout Scripture, that even you now, God, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, you do not focus on our disobedience. You do not focus on our failures or our shortcomings. But you see Christ's obedience, that, you have, that we have been clothed with, with Jesus' righteousness and goodness. I pray that you would liberate us from the lie that we can live our life apart from you. But help us to experience the fullness of life that is in you because we were made for you. And I know, Lord, it sounds scary. I know it sounds weird. But I pray that you would give us faith when we doubt. That you would help us in our unbelief to step forward, to not be tempted by that fruit of our own self-dependence. But take upon the fruit of following you, looking upon the tree to understand that you showed us completely what it means to follow you and that we don't have to bear that burden. Help us, Lord, just to follow, just to follow you today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.